Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. And uh, today, Pete, uh, oh, I should introduce you, Peter. Who am I? I'm here with the wonderful Peter Hart, military historian extraordinaire, certainly extraordinaire. Um, And and today, Pete... I'm here with Gary Bain. Yes, lucky are you. And today, Pete, we're once more on Zoom. We're getting better at that, aren't we? No. Um, No. (laughs) And today... We're going to continue our story in the build-up to the Battle of Arras. Um, so we're, we're, we're not quite there yet. Uh, and today's podcast is called Countdown to Battle of Arras, 9th of April, 1917. Yeah, <laughs> Are you impressed? Yeah, I'm right, <laughs> right impressed. I'm right impressed. So, so, so why don't you kick us off to this, more, this morning? Well, all the work... All the suffering, and that's just what I have to put up with with you, but also that the men had undergone of the Royal Flying Corps, it had been in preparation for the Battle of Arras. Now, the assault was originally planned to start on the 8th of April, but it had to be postponed by 24 hours at the request of General Robert Nivelle. Who's he, Uh, Gary? uh, He was the relatively recent appointment as uh, chief of the, uh, the French Armed Forces or Army, as it was otherwise known. I got myself in a mess there. It's always good uh, to ask an unexpected question. <laughs> uh, and thus, the designated first day of the Battle of Arras became Easter Monday, 9th of April 1917. So they probably gave Ooh. each other nice eggs and stuff. Yeah, there'd be no trouble, I expect. Now, um, by, by the start of April, uh, the British artillery concentration was almost complete. Uh, this is a huge thing, uh, Gary. Uh, they'd got 2,816 guns and howitzers. They'd been painfully, ta- you know, take that. This is a logistic thing of gigantic proportions. They've got to get the guns there. That's not easy. They're, bi- they're big, bangy things. They're heavy. Uh, huge, massive, enormous stockpiles of shells built up. And, of course, they have to work out their targets and, pre- and prepare their fire programmes. Uh, you know, raise how many feet they'd have to raise all that, sort of, you know, to get the, hit their target. And how many, how many German guns and howitzers do you think they're facing? More? No, 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 they were significantly less. They were faced by 1,014 German guns and howitzers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So how, how was, does that compare to the Somme, Pete? 
Well, yeah, it's a four-day bombardment, and you could compare it to, to, to the Somme. There, in eight days before the 1st of July, they'd fired some 52,000 tonnes of ammunition. But at Arras, they fired 88,000 tonnes. Now, that's how many thousand tonnes more, Gary? Oh, that's uh, oh, around about uh, 36. Yeah, 36,000, so compare... 36, Gary. So how does that compare to Nerve Chappelle and Loose Pete? Uh, well, uh, well, Neuf Chapelle, uh, I think it's the first barrage that has more shells per, squ- per, per yard of front. It's, it's a significant step forward in the density of, uh, of, of, of the barrages. Because Neuf Chapelle had been the, 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 the top for shells per yard of front. Because there weren't many, I expected there weren't many you to struggle with that. Oh, yeah. Well, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> now... Um, now, the, the, there's something else different about this. I think I'll throw this one back to you, Gary, since we seem to be in a difficult mood, both of us, this morning. So uh, what, what, what else is better about the barrage, the Arras barrage? Well, as, as, as we've said on a number of occasions, in 1915, there was a shell shortage and also there was problems in the, the, the manufacturer. And that meant that... Uh, uh, Leading into the Somme and, and beyond, there was a distressingly high proportion of shells which simply failed to go off. Now, that had largely been resolved in uh, 1917. So shells went bang. They did what they were intended to do. They did exactly what they said on the tin. So the German lines, that's not just... And remember, this is trench systems, lines, whatever you want to define as. They're plastered with a, a whirlwind of exploding, bangy shells. And... Uh, the the, 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 the the artillery plants are also more sophisticated than they had been on the SOB. So take us through this. The big thing for me, because this relates to the Royal Flying Corps, is counter-battery fire. Now tell me, what, what what's changed about their attitude to that? Well, you could argue that it was no longer an afterthought to be tackled as and when desired. It had a fundamental importance. So specific batteries were designated to do nothing other than relentless counter-battery work in an effort to destroy every identified German battery with the uh, combined assistance of the forward observation posts. The RFC Army cooperation crews, kite balloon observers... We uh, forget them, don't we? Yeah, flash spotters and sound rangers. So that's all coming together now. And each had their role to play if the German batteries were to be uh, silenced. And as the days passed, they they were collectively successful in knocking out battery after battery, gun after gun. Now, the next bit's a bit... It's almost confusing because there's a lot of statistics coming up. So just get an impression. Uh, total British air- aircraft strength amassed on the front of the British 1st and 3rd Armies, they're the ones who go over the top at Arras, with some 25 squadrons deploying 365 aircraft, of which 120 were single-seater scouts. So how many were Army cooperation machines, would you say, Gary? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, Pete, and I'm not going to work it out. 245. Thank you so, very uh, much. Now, opposing that, how many did the Germans have? Well, they had just 195 Army cooperation and scout aircraft. Now, between Lille and Peron, that's the, the wider front. It's wider, isn't it? Yeah, the British 1st, 3rd, 5th and 4th Armies, they were facing the German 6th and 1st Armies. In all, the British had 41 squadrons and 754 aircraft, of which 385 were single-seat aircraft. So how many were Army cooperation, Pete? Uh, <laughs> one, two, yeah. three, lots! Lots. 
Now, the Germans, they had 264 <laughs> aircraft. Which I've never started that. Of which 114 were single-seater aircraft, so that would suggest 150 were uh, Army, uh, were, uh, Army yeah. co- cooperation. Now, uh, well, why are the Germans so outnumbered? What else is going on for the Germans? Well, you, you, you've got to remember that the, the main German air concentration of some 480 aircraft, which included about 240 scouts, uh, that was directed against the French. And why was that? Well, that's because they were fully aware of the imminent Nivelle offensive on the arm. Arm, aim. Aim, I'll go for. Now, uh, so the British seem to have a crushing advantage in overall numbers, don't they? They do seem, it seems like it should be a pushover. But it's a bit of an illusion, isn't it? So, uh, so, so why is it an illusion? Well, as well, we've well, said, We've said in recent podcasts the technological superiority of the German albatross, that was such that it it, it ruled the skies. There was no doubt about that. Now, the British have got a new generation of aircraft just about ready, but in true British fashion, they're just about ready, but not ready in in many ways. And Trenchard, the few that there are there, Trenchard decides to hold back until the offensive had actually begun. Why do you think he did that? Well, he's trying to maximise their impact at the time when it most matters. Um, Now, in such circumstances, only raw courage could make use of brute numbers and the courage to take to the skies, knowing that many of them must die so that a few could succeed. Bit purple prose there, Gary. Very nice. I know. I wonder who wrote that. (laughs) <laughs> now, after all, the infantry so far below, they'd die in immeasurably greater numbers if the guns of the Royal Artillery were not properly harnessed to their uh, destructive task. Now, you can imagine that in circumstances like this, you need forceful leadership. And do you think do you think Trenchard was the man for the job? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wasn't the sort of man that had evade his responsibilities, was he? His, no. his policy of sustained aerial offensive faced its most crucial test, but he remained grimly determined that the RFC would not be found wanting. I, th- I think he sees the bigger picture. He, he knows that it, they have to take those guns out. They have to get those photographs. They have to do that. The, these missions had to be successfully accomplished. And so what does that mean? If, if at first you don't succeed, what do you do, Gary? Well, you've got to launch... Well, you, you give another... up, but... <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, what, but... What, what would Trenchard do? <laughs> well, you've, you've got to immediately launch another effort, uh, regardless of the inevitable casualties. This wasn't stupidity or bravado. It's just a grim military necessity. Yeah. And he fully now... appreciated the role of the RFC. Yeah, and he had the guts to make... I mean, it's it's moral. Uh, it's moral. It's uh, what you call it. Uh, he's... He, it takes immense mental strength to send people off to die. Uh, it's probably right that he should do so, but it's a terrible decision for Trenchard. It must have been. But luckily, he's a fairly insensitive brute to go with. So uh. Now, there is an irony here because Trenchard himself was laid up at the crucial moment with an attack of German measles. Oh, dear. Now, now that, that was caused- a lot... That- that was a lot more serious then, wasn't it, than it is now, unless you're a pregnant woman. It was, woman. but it still caused a, a, a lot of hilarity around the RFC messes at the great man's expense. And as a result, for the first few days of April, he was confined to his sickbed, where he fumed at his temporary impotence, only oh. temporary impotence. Oh, he came back to full potency, did he? Yeah, unlike us. Now, um, 
Of, of course, as we all know, uh, the Germans have a belt buckle, got mittens, uh, but uh, we've always known that God's with us, isn't he? So what was the weather like at the start of April when we particularly needed to get every aeroplane into the air carrying out their important functions? What was the weather like, Gary? Well, 1st of April, start of spring weather, wasn't it? No. It was firmly uh, held in check by the full gamut of winter weather. Um, oh, no. <laughs> now, a second lieutenant... Charles Smart, he'd recently been transferred to 16 Squadron, but there was to be uh, no easy introduction for him. Straight away, he was in action above Vimy Ridge. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Charles Smart of 16 Squadron. Tried to do shoot with the 5th Canadian Siege on hostile battery, number 1313. My first attempt at a shoot, and of course, the weather was dud. I found the ground strips all right, and also the target. Fired three shots, then the clouds came down. Stopped the battery firing and hunting about for 45 minutes to see if weather would clear. Instead of clearing, a violent hailstorm came on and the clouds <coughs> must have dropped almost to the ground. So I at once cleared off home and was jolly glad to find the aerodrome. A hailstorm is a rotten thing to be up in. I could hardly see the ground from 400 feet and the hail stung like fury. It was amusing to watch the hailstones bounce off my nose onto the windscreen. So a jolly lovely. image. Lovely. Uh, so bad weather. And, oh, well, they just hope it's going to get better. Uh, these are really harsh flying conditions. And, and, and it, you know, it, it, it would keep you on the ground. Those aeroplanes can't cope with it. But I suppose uh, one good thing is the Germans couldn't fly. Uh, or, or if they did, they'd be blind as well. Let's go. So let's go. How does the month progress? What What's next? Well, at first, no, right on the 2nd of April. 2nd of April, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I've just realised. The weather that. seemed to have relented the very next day. But the weather soon deteriorated again into a nasty combination of rain mixed with frequent lashings of snow and hail, <laughs> all driven by a gale force wind that headed straight toward the German lines. Their pilots found progress was almost impossible. The wind meant that they were almost at a standstill as they flew back to their bases. And you're going to be Captain Ewart Garland, also of 16 Squadron. Snow, hail and 60 mile per hour winds. So, some flying attempted and several machines crashed by wind when trying to take off. Quite a number of Huns up over the lines. Not long ago, they were rarely seen in bad weather. Ooh. Now, uh, so that, that morning, late that morning, 2nd of April... Lieutenant Alan Dorr, commanding Sea Flight of 43 Squadron, was uh, charged. They'd been doing this a lot. He, he was up again. He was to photograph the section of the Hindenburg Line, that new defensive line that they'd become aware of, that lay to the east of Vimy Ridge. Now, it, 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 this is a really important mission, and everyone could see it. Um, now, um, <coughs> they're up there in their shop with one and a half strutters, our favourite aircraft, the best name ever. And they're up there, and he's up there with his patrol, uh, and, and suddenly, Gary, a red aircraft, red, mark you, attacks his patrol. And he's attacking the one and a half strutter flown by Lieutenant Peter Warren, who was up there for the, f and for the first time. He had Sergeant Rule Dunn as his observer. What happens, Gary? Because you're going to be Lieutenant Peter Warren of 43 Squadron. I was flying at the end of the V in the last position, which made me the highest. Richtofen dove down out of the sun and took Dunn by surprise. 
The first notice I had of the attack was when I heard Dunn from his seat behind me shout something at me, and at the same time a spray of bullets went over my shoulder from behind and splintered the dashboard almost in front of my face. I kicked over the rudder and dived instantly, and just got a glance at the red machine passing under me to the rear. Now, it does seem it's red, and we know now that a lot of uh, Richtofen's just are painted their aircraft red, but this does seem to have been Richtofen. Now, his Warren's machine's already been riddled with bullets. He takes emergency action. Uh, but that means if you take emergency action, you get separated from the rest of your formation. And we've said the formations provided a, a, a strength in numbers because the combined machine gun fire. Now, he's got no choice, so once again, you're going to be Peter Warren. I looked back over my shoulder and Dunn was not in sight. I did not know whether he'd been thrown out of the plane in my quick dive or was lying dead at the bottom of his cockpit. I realised that he was out of action, however, and that I was quite defenceless from the rear. I endeavoured to get my forward machine gun on the red plane, but Richtofen was too wise a pilot and his machine was too speedy for mine. He zoomed up again and was on my tail in less than half a minute. Another burst of lead came over my shoulder and the glass faces of the instruments on the dashboard popped up in my face. I dived again, but he followed my every move. I had lost several thousand feet, but still below me was a layer of clouds. I dove for it, hoping to pull up in it and shake him off. Yeah, yeah, but he has no luck at all here because it looks a solid mass of clouds, but it's only a thin layer. Uh, he can't hide in it, if you like, or, or come out of it at a different angle. A rigged off He's not the kind of man to be thrown off easily, is he? he? And here's a simile you might enjoy. He sticks to Warren as Fred would to a juicy bone. Or indeed, as I would to Warren. No, Gary, you are Warren. I meant Wazza. Oh, <laughs> is Wazza getting his own personal mention now? He's getting his own personal mention. I'm Hello, once more Wa be Hello, Warren! <laughs> <laughs> and once more going to be Lieutenant Peter Warren of 43 Squadron. I found that the Red Albatross with those sputtering machine guns had come through with me. Another burst of lead from behind and the bullets spattered on the breech of my own machine gun, cutting the cartridge belt. At the same time, my engine stopped and I knew that the fuel tanks had been hit. There were more clouds below me. I dove for them and tried to pull up in them as soon as I reached them. No luck. My elevators didn't answer the stick. The control wires had been shot away. There was nothing to do but go down and hope to keep out of a spin as best as I could. I side-slipped and then went into a dive which fast became a spiral. I don't know how I got out of it. I was busy with the useless controls all the time and going down at a frightful speed, but the red machine seemed to be able to keep itself poised just above and behind me all the time, and its machine guns were working every minute. I found later that bullets had gone through both of my sleeves and both of my boot legs, but in all of the firing, not one of them touched me. I managed to flatten out somehow in the landing and piled up with an awful crash. As I hit the ground, the red machine swooped over me, but I don't remember him firing on me when I was on the ground. Now, uh, that, that's a, that, that, can you imagine his nightmares for the rest of his life? Because that, that's just horrific. Now, the rest of the sop with one half star has got back safely. Uh, but the photographs they'd taken under this sort of pressure proved to be useless. They have to be at the right height. They've got to be, you know, uh, and also the visibility conditions. Of course, th there's clouds and bloody things in the world. So, so what, do you, what does that mean? Well, they that failed. means that the whole mission would have to be repeated the next day. 
as we mentioned earlier, failure was not, would not, could not be accepted. And uh, Second Lieutenants Donald MacDonald and Jack O'Brien of 25 Squadron were sent off on a mission... Yes, sent off in a, on a mission in their FE2B. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Donald MacDonald of 25 Squadron. I... <laughs> no, I'm not going to do a Scottish accent. Major Cherry asked us to go and obtain photographs of Vimy Ridge. These photographs were particularly required by headquarters, and many were the attempts that had been made to get them by other squadron commanders and squadrons. We all naturally volunteered. There were three machines, and off we went with cameras, etc. We were supposed to be met by an escort at the lines, but we were disappointed in not finding one over them when we arrived. However, we were not to be daunted by this, chose our moment, and over we went. Every one of us, as far as I've found out, succeeded in getting the required photographs, about 60 plates each, and then our group leader gave us the order to close in as a preliminary to returning home. All this took about 28 minutes, and luckily enough, we had not so far been spotted. Now, um, wow. That, wow. That's, that, so it could be done. And this is the idea. The Germans, there's not many of them. They can't be everywhere. So you nip across when you can. Now, then, then it all goes to hell on a hindcart or whatever the expression is. Well, after completing their run of photographs, they sighted three German scouts rising from below, and they rather rashly accepted the uh, implicit challenge. In this... For all their undoubted courage, they showed a reprehensible failure to realise the true importance of the pictures that they had risked so much to obtain. So they didn't really know what they were doing in some sense. They've they failed to grasp what's going on, haven't they? No, they've got to yeah. get those photographs back. The importance cannot be overstressed. Now, suddenly, the three German aircraft multiplied into a swarm of aggressive scouts buzzing around them from all sides. And you're going to continue the story as 2nd Lieutenant Donald MacDonald. Now, before we start, the, 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 when people are in a dogfight, they, they over-exaggerate, not, not deliberately, the number of planes they're fighting. Uh, it's just human nature. It's human I'll nature. Go. Yeah. And here, this is uh, Donald MacDonald. Aye. And He's then, Welsh. No, they were from a dozen to 16, almost on top of our tails then. We had then a, a very one-sided scrap. And, of course, keeping ourselves in a small circle and endeavouring to keep them outside. But there were too many for us. When it got hot for any one of them, he dropped out and another couple had a go at us. Jack was firing over my top plane, to the rear, that is. We've seen the pictures, and we'll put another picture up if we remember of, of an FE-2B, how they fire the, the, the observers in the front, you see, firing over the pilot and over the top wing. When suddenly a close burst from behind hit him right in the head and he dropped down in his seat. The machine tossed and dropped its height. It was, but for a matter of a few minutes before some of them got, got my engine while I was endeavouring to steer and shoot at the same time and I was forced down to ground just outside Lens on the southeast side. The Hun followed me right down to the ground, firing all the time till he almost shot away every control I had. I made for a good-looking field, but as luck would have it, beneath the long grass were barbed wire entanglements, and with all my instruments shot away, I landed at a faster pace than I should have done, and caught in the wire, going head over heels. Fortunately, the machine went right over the top of me when I was thrown out. I was picked up and conscious. Wow. And uh, who well, was it who shot him down? Was it Lynn? No. No, he that's the He landed outside Lynn's. It was Manfred von Richthofen. That's who'd shot him down, flying alongside his younger brother, Lothar, 
or Lothar von Richthofen. Lothar, yeah. Now, one thing was certain. The vital photographs had been lost. And therefore, mm. what would have to happen? They'd the have to do it again. Fly again. Yeah, I mean, it's... So, it, it's just recurring, isn't it? Now, it Wednesday, is. 4th of April, it marked the beginning of the final awesome stage of the preliminary artillery bombardment. Innumerable boom, shells, boom. so that's one, two, three lots, rained down on the German lines and splattered around the artillery batteries. The British were bringing hell on earth to the Germans in preparation for Easter 1917. It's almost religious, isn't it? Almost. Almost. Now, uh, the, 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 this, the roar of the mass guns, it, it marks a set, the start of the formal air offensive. Now, why do I say formal air offensive? That's because it had been going on since January for those Royal Flying Corps pilots. Uh, now, whatever the, the casualties at this stage, they have to sweep the German aircraft from the sky. Uh, and they've got to allow their own Army Corporation uh, aircraft the complete freedom to, to carry out their duties, whether it be taking photographs, observing artillery fire, or whatever. And Trenchard issued some rather stern orders to his brigade commanders, and, and this was issued, obviously, a few days earlier, on the 28th of, 26th of March, but referring to this phase of the fighting. And you're going to be Brigadier Big Boy Hugh Trenchard. Brigadier General. Oh, sorry, yeah. I knew that. The aim of our offensive will therefore be to force the enemy to fight well behind and not on the lines. This aim will only be successfully achieved if offensive patrols are pushed well out to the limits of army reconnaissance areas and the general officer commanding looks to brigadiers to carry out this policy and not to give way to requests for the close protection of corps machines except in special cases when such machines are proceeding on work at an abnormal distance over the lines. The aerial ascendancy, which has uh, which was gained by our pilots and observers on the Somme last year, was a direct result of the policy outlined above. Excellent. Very pretty clear. They're going well, to... So the scouts will swarm over the, the lines, pe penetrated deeply, and they're going to try and dominate the whole battle zone. And, and how would you define the battle zone at Arras, Gary? What, what, I mean, how big is it? Well, it, it was about 20 miles wide and it, and it reached back as far as 15 miles from the front lines. Now, within that zone, they would shoot down any German aircraft they encountered, while the airfields and the communications infrastructure was to be bombed. Uh, closer to the lines, the German kite balloons would uh, also be targeted. Now, so the the, the air the air offensive is meant to begin on the Wednesday the 4th of April. Uh, what, does, uh, what does God do? Well, I'm not sure it's good or if it's just the weather, but it shows a, a lofty disdain is how you've described it, Pete, for precision human timetables. And the vagaries of the weather once more intervene and restrict the planned aerial operations to the extent that almost nothing of any importance could be achieved on the 4th of April. That's serious, Gary, because there's a finite number of days before the 9th of April. I mean, we could all realise this. You can't just lose days, but on the other hand, you can't fly if you can't get off the ground. Well, in fact, when you say finite, there's <coughs> five. I couldn't work that out. No. So that's another day lost. Time's running yeah. out. 
in a few brief days, as we've said, five days, the, five. British, if, the British infantry would have to leave the shelter of their trenches and walk into the open wastes of no man's land. Now, if the German artillery batteries had not been accurately located, registered and silenced, if the German trenches and strong points had not been pulverised, if the machine gun posts had not been identified and dealt with, then the British and Canadian infantry are surely doomed, Pete. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and you can see that uh, he's, uh, Trenchard's getting twitchy because on the 5th of April, he plays one of his trump cards, one of the new aircraft that have been held back for maximum impact. And he, he has to go now. This is the right moment. This is when it matters. And uh, what, what, what he's got are the, a few Bristol fighters, um, and they're going to be thrown into the fray for the first time. Now, you're, you're an expert on aircraft. Uh, <laughs> You could have saved the laughter for after the recording. Yeah, sorry. You're an expert. Oh, it's so good, I've got to repeat it. You're an expert on uh, First World War aircraft. Tell me a bit about the Bristol aircraft, Gary. Well, Did, great it have things wi- Did it have wings? It? it had wings, but it also had two seats. Uh, the pilot had a fixed forward-firing synchronised Vickers machine gun, whilst the rear gunner had uh, a Lewis gun. Now, that's now the same... Uh, hang on, that's the same as a SOP with one-and-a-half strutter. Why is it better? Well, it had a great advantage over the uh, SOP with one-and-a-half-inch strutter. It lay in its... Uh, one-and-a-half-inch strutter? God, that's what Lord! One-and-a-half strutter. Inch strutter. No! Now, <laughs> Bad, Gary! <laughs> it had the Rolls-Royce Falcon engine. Now... That powered it to a top speed of just over 110 miles per hour at 10,000 feet. But it also had a correspondingly impressive uh, fast rate of climb. And the first squadron to be equipped with the Bristol Fighter was the newly arrived 48 Squadron. Poor. Now, th- this, this aircraft is a scout, remember? So it could be, fl- you know, it, it, it could. It was as good as, as, as any other scout aircraft. Um, but there is a problem. What's the problem in giving, instead of giving it to an experienced squadron, did you say newly arrived, Gary? Yeah, newly arrived. So the obvious risk is uh, they've got this precious new aircraft and it and, uh, basically leads to an, an utter calamity on the first offensive patrol, which was led by Captain William Leaf Robinson, VC. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, what's the problem with him? Well, we, we know about Leif Robertson. He's a very well-known man, isn't he? But he had no previous experience of air fighting on the Western Front. He's... Uh, accelerated promotion had been made on the basis of his courageous achievement in shooting the first Zeppelin airship raiding Britain in September 1916. Yeah, he's the first aircraft to shoot one then. It was quite an achievement. But what's that relevance as that to leading a, a squadron of a, an aircraft he's unfamiliar with over uh, over Joe Lowe's? I, I, I expect they went somewhere safe, somewhere quiet, somewhere where there would be no trouble and they could just get a few, you know, a few missions under their belt, get, get experienced. Uh, is that what they did? Well, absolutely. Who was based at Douai? Oh. It was uh, Rick Toffen and his Jester. And is that where they went? Oh, yeah. what happens? Now, the Bristol fighters run straight into an albatross formation commanded by Rick Toffen. In the ensuing dogfight, four of the Bristol fighters are shot down, including the hapless Leif Robinson, and the other two were lucky to escape. Now, Leif Robinson wasn't killed, was he? He was wounded no. and taken prisoner. Uh, and in fact, I think he was he was treated absolutely terribly. Uh, well, the Germans the took it, took again him because of because of that zeppelin, and uh, it's unfair. Poor sod. What happens to him in the end? You remember, don't you? Well, he's, he's repatriated in December nineteen eighteen. But uh, unfortunately, he died of the Spanish flu on the thirty-first of December. Terrible! It's it's a it it's a it, it it's a tragic story. That that by the way, yeah, just to keep count because we are been following Rick off in one way. Now that's his thirty-fifth and thirty-sixth victories. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I think Bolker finished what forty, so he's approaching the master. Um, why was this so disappointing for the British? Well, it appeared that the Bristol fighter had failed entirely to live up to uh, expectations. I mean, indeed, flown as a conventional two-seater, relying on the observer to shoot down opponents and sticking to rigid flying formations, it was pretty ineffectual. Well, it's very ineffectual, yeah. Because, and, what, and, of course, what do the pilots start to say? What do the observers, what does the RFC start to say? It's the usual stuff. Oh, it's a spinning death trap. It's got structural weaknesses. It'll fall apart. But that's not how it's meant to be flown, is it? it it's, you've got no, to it, fly. You've got to fly it as if it's a single-seater scout uh, thrown into a, into action with All the added bonus of a Willy rear nilly. gunner. Yeah. yeah, to watch to watch your ass, we uh, your capacious or a stern. ass. No, they don't have sterns aircraft. That you're thinking of HMS Invincible again. <laughs> now, the night of the fifth, sixth of April saw the beginning of a new lease of life for the uh, struggling Fe2Bs. What happened? 
Well, these these aircraft have been uh, they've been great on the Somme in 916, and they were good aircraft. Uh, but they were they couldn't live with the Albatross, so they decided to use them in another way. Now, what they did was they used them for night bombing raids. Uh, it's it's a great idea. They were they were reliable. The engines were reliable. They were robust, uh, and they could carry a, a, well about eight twenty pound bombs. That's not going to destroy Berlin, is it? Not that they could reach it, but um, that's a, a joke. But you know, or um, lower stuffed. Oh. Well, they're not meant to be bombing low stuff without a disastrous navigational error. But, they, you know, um, their, their disadvantages are cloaked by darkness. You know, you, they're easy to shoot down for albatrosses, but if it's dark, you can't find them. Um, now, so next day, so 6th of April. Um, now, this is a bad day for 45 Squadron. Uh, they're up with their what? Sop with one and a half strutters, not one and a half inch, as the plebeian might think. Um, they're, they're, uh, <laughs> they're based to the north of the Ebes, but they're drawn into the air offensive because although it's quite a way on the ground, in the air, it's the same distance, but aircraft could cover it in a matter of minutes. And uh, they 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 drawn into the sort of countdown to the Battle of Arras, and uh, uh, the, the 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 pilots of Forty Five Squadron uh, they're they're starting to worry about the sop with one nav strutter. They think they're bloody useless. And you're going to be Captain Frank Courtney uh, of Forty Five Squadron RFC, and I'm looking forward to your interpretation of this Australian hero. Born in London. Oh God, another cop out. It wasn't so much the losses themselves oh, that distressed God. us. We knew very well that the whole RFC was going through a tough time. What perturbed us was that the staff appeared greatly to overestimate the capabilities of He's our South stoppers. African! And we were losing too many men and planes on ill-considered assignments that we were too feeble to carry out. Now, he's not on his own here. He's not an outlier. He is a mainstream opinion of Sop with one half sort of pilot. Uh, they're just not up to long-range photographic reconnaissance. Day by day, as they're carrying out the mission, trip by trip with the casualties, their, their morale starts to crack under the strain. And once again, you're going to be uh, Fra Captain Frank Courtney. From London. We came used to losing two out of five planes, or three out of eight. And there were occasions when we wondered how any of us got back at all. Often the planes we got back with were not usable anymore. We began to run out of replacement planes, and at one time, in a desperate effort to keep the squadron up to strength, headquarters tried to fill our gaps by calling on the French for some superannuated Newport two-seaters, which at least gave us something to laugh at, because the new Newports had only two and a half hours fuel, and couldn't even keep up with the Sopwiths. It was, however, the extent of our crew losses that became crippling and eventually notorious. Now, Courtney, he was commanding B flight, uh, and he got more and more frustrated. I mean, can you, he's, he's, he's in charge of his flight. He's making life or death decisions. And, and who's it affected? It's his mates. These are his friends. He may be their commander, but it's a close-knit relationship. And, and, of course, there's somebody else he's worried about. He can't help but worry about. Who's that? Who are you worried about as well, Gary? Well, he'd be worried about himself. Yeah. He's yeah. worried that he's living on borrowed time and that every mission he survived brought him closer to what seemed to be an inevitable fate. Do you find that, do you find that worrying, uh, uh, Frank? <laughs> Gary Frank? Well, let's see what he says, Pete. Captain Frank Courtney. I needed a heavy overdraft of my brimming store of luck 
on the various occasions when they shot up my plane or gunner, the Germans seem to have developed the knack of missing my person completely and never doing quite enough damage to the uh, plane to prevent me reaching at least our side of the lines. But this sort of luck could not go on forever. And like most of us now, my early eagerness for battle had worn very thin. They'd have had a job missing your person, Gary. <laughs> no offence. I'm taken. <laughs> Now, um, so this is on, on the 6th of April, Courtney's ordered to, to lead another long-range reconnaissance patrol right over, over Lille. 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 No, Lille. Lille. <laughs> uh, and and uh, earlier, they'd sent out a single aircraft uh, at dawn to try and do it by stealth. Uh, it had failed, you know. So they had to try it again. And there's no time. They can't wait. Another. They've got to do it that day. So uh, they, they decide to send eight aircraft. Um, and uh, amongst the sop with one and a half strutters, there's one flown by Second Lieutenant J.A. Marshall, who had as his observer Second Lieutenant F.G. Truscott. And Truscott was an amusing character. This is this is awfully sad, the next bit. He, had a, he was an amusing bloke. He was funny. He was like Gary, had a sense of humour, and he has... Gary, he has a cunning plan to thwart the, you know, the Germans and fate. They're all going to be Frank Courtney. Truscott was mess president of B-Flight and kept the mess funds in assorted bunches of French currency. One morning, a reconnaissance was announced which promised to be sticky, and it was, and Truscott was going as observer with Marshall. As we got ready, Truscott made a big show of putting a fat envelope in, of paper francs into the pocket of his flying coat and informed us, This is my special system of self-preservation. You see, when you observe my machine being attacked, you will say, Look, there go our mess funds, and you will all rally round to protect me. I suppose at the age we were then, the idea of being shot down was always somewhat academic, so nobody took any more notice. Blimey. Now, inevitably... They're off on this long-distance mission. Who do they run into? Well, they run straight into a, a formation of German scouts. And on this occasion, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Geoffrey Cock of 45 Squadron. The first hostile machine came up on the right of the formation, flew along at the side and slightly in front, firing at about 300 yards range. He then crossed well in front of the formation, and I got in a burst of about 70 rounds from the front gun. Then the other hostile machines came up behind the formation and attacked the rear and middle machines of the formation. Oh dear. Well, if they could keep their formation... If they could keep their formation of eight aircraft, all those machine guns, Gary, surely everything would be all right. But round them, there's buzzing all these German bloody scouts. And they're just looking for an opening, a chance to shoot them down. And once again, once again, once again, once again, you're going to be Captain... There's nothing funny in this world. Captain Frank Courtney. During the show, Campbell was shot down first. Marshall with Truscott was flying a little high to the left and slightly behind me, and another machine was between us. Six or eight Huns were coming up, apparently too far behind to start shooting. We never knew what actually happened, but possibly a long-range flute shot from the Huns hit Marshall's rigging, for I saw his right wing fold up, and as he twisted round, he crashed into the next machine. Both wrecks, with bits flying in all directions, missed my tail by a few feet and, of course, there was no hope for the four fellows inside. With the inevitable lack of any sense of proportion which goes with such affairs, I thought, goodbye, Truscott, but what about our mess money? 
and then another dogfight started, and there was no time to think of anything else. Truscott had been killed, uh, and 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 there's a sort of tragic, bittersweet postscript because the depressed survivors, and there were some survivors, but not many, when they got back to, uh, to the airfield, and you're going to take up the story as as Frank Courtney. When Austin, my observer, and I finally walked into the mess hut, a corporal came up to me with a fat envelope. Mr. Truscott told me to give you this if he didn't come back this evening. So he hadn't taken it up with him. It was all a joke. And uh, I don't know. Uh, Now, at this point, Courtney is really shaken. He's very upset. And he runs into his commanding officer. Now, his commanding officer, his papers are in the War Museum. He left a diary. But he's quite a bad-tempered old bugger. And he was called Major William Reed. And with him, and this is all getting a bit unfortunate given the, the state Courtney was in, was uh, a distinguished figure, a Brigadier General Tom Webb Bowen, who was in command of the whole of Second Brigade. Now, it's fair to say that Courtney rises to the occasion uh, when he gets a chance to, to have his say. And, you're, and I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Norman McMillan, 45 Squadron. One of the four pilots, that's uh, Courtney, or Gary in our minds, full of anguish at the thought of the men who had been lost, in the hearing of the Brigadier General, made the classic remark which caused him to be transferred to the home establishment. Some people say that sop with two-seaters are bloody fine machines, but I think they're more bloody than fine. Mm. Now, that's not how junior officers were expected to address their superiors, no matter what the situation was. Now, from our perspective, and with the benefit of hindsight, we can appreciate that Brigadier Webb Bowen was caught in an unfortunate situation. After all, what other aircraft could have flown these long-range missions that the Army required? B-2E's by then? Well, B-2... Well, they older. Yeah. What about the fb 2 FE2Bs? Oh, the FE2Bs, they're already fully engaged in a a multiplicity of roles for which they too were overstretched. There were just not enough of the new aircraft available. But the missions still have to be done, don't they? And it's a a chain of command. And where does that chain go from? Where where does it start? Who has the ultimate responsibility? Well, it starts with Haig. It goes through Trenchard to Webb Boeing and then via the irascible Reed, and ultimately to Courtney and his, his fellow pilots at the Sharp End. No one could evade their responsibilities. It's not, yeah, you, it's not to say that your feelings as, as Courtney are, are not real. Uh, they are real and they are justified within your circle. It's just not in the bigger picture, is it? It's, it's, there was it, really no alternative to the use of the sock with one and a half stratters. Now, the, 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 let's not be too gloomy. There, there is hope for the, for the future because uh, a month earlier, another squadron, fifty five squadron, had arrived, and uh, and they were equipped with a DH four, uh, the De Havilland four. Who designed that, do you reckon? Well, that'll be Geoffrey De Havilland, Pete. Spot on. Now, using your, uh, your again your expertise on First World War aircraft, t- tell us what made the DH four. Uh, has has Fred farted? He has. <laughs> tell, tell us what makes the DH-4, well, special, or better rather than special. Well, it was a fast, powerful aircraft. It was easy to fly, capable of reaching very high altitudes. It was able to defend itself with a forward-firing Vickers machine gun and a further Lewis gun for the observer with a useful bomb load of up to 412-pound bombs and a robust construction that enabled it to take considerable punishment if things did 
go wrong. So it wouldn't get, get shot by a single bullet unless you were unlucky, yeah. Yeah, I mean, primarily they were bombers, but they could act as long-range aircraft. And even if they were caught by the German scouts, they were manoeuvrable and well-armed. Now, the 6th of April, the day we're looking at, the day when all this happened, was uh, it was a really hard-fought day. But the RFC had achieved a lot. You're good at statistics, so uh, tell me, what, what? give me some statistics. How do you define a good day? What have they managed? Well, in this respect, they'd taken some 700 photographs and safely returned for detailed analysis and, and interpretation. Uh, about 123 artillery targets had been engaged using aerial observation and a large number of direct hits had been reported. Meanwhile, the bombing squadrons had been attacking the airfields, railway communications, ammunition dumps and billeting areas of the Germans. So well, it's quite a, quite a quite a big thing. But there's only a couple of days left, isn't there? Seventh and the eighth before the actual ninth. Uh, so now every every minute spent in the air is worth its weight in gold. It's it's that's a that's a sort of cliche. But what it's what is it really worth? What how do we really count every minute spent in the air? Uh, it's it's cost in uh, corpses. Yes, and at this by this time, the ground round and over the. The German lines is littered with burnt-out aircraft, FB2Es, FE2s, uh, sop with one-and-a-half strutters, uh, and, and the Germans, they were having minimal casualties. Uh, and, and this is despite what uh, the more optimistic British scout pilot flying their... Uh, their sop with, uh, their sop with uh, you know, the sop with, the early sop with and the rest of it, whatever they were saying... Um, they weren't shooting many down. Now, uh, how's Trenchard? Is he better yet? No, 7th of April, he's still feeling poorly. And he therefore used his assistant, Captain Morris Baring, as his eyes and ears, sending him out and about to see how his men were reacting to their losses. It was soon apparent that the situation was grave and that the RFC was being tested to destruction by the existences of the Battle of Arras. Existences or exigencies? <laughs> Which I can't pronounce. <laughs> Do you know, I've had so much... I only put that word in, I think, to annoy myself, because I can't pronounce it. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm glad you decided to play this part. You because can't Morris... pronounce Lil. <laughs> no, but, but I particularly... You're going to be Captain Morris Baring of Headquarters Royal Flycar, who was a different type from yourself. He was intelligent. He was cultured. He was a, a well-known uh, writer of, 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 of uh, literary pieces, uh, of, of novels, which were highly regarded by the literati or the glitterati or anybody who had a, you know, who, who was cultured. Never hear of him now because they were bloody awful, of course. Well, certainly to the likes of you, Gary. Uh, but you are going to be Captain Morris Baring. Give it, give the part your all. And he wasn't Trenchard. No. He was different to Trenchard, is the point I'm making. Yeah. Very the different. General, <laughs> the, the general sent me out by myself to see squadrons. The battle was now upon us. Fighting in the air on a battle scale had begun. We had not got the necessary number of fighting machines. One gap was, fortunately, filled by the French. De Pute gave us enough Newports to supply a whole squadron. It was evident that we should not get through the battle and do the work of the armies without severe loss. 
Yeah, I wonder if those are the Newports that uh, that uh, Courtney was talking about, or whether they're the Newport Scouts. I don't know. Now, uh, one obvious source of, of reinforcement, what's that, Gary? There is another Air Force, remember, at this point. Could they yeah, help? Yeah. Who, who well, are they? They had previously assisted. It's the uh, Royal Naval Air Service. and, Fine and body they of men. Out, they'd helped out during the later stages on the Somme. Now, in early April... Uh, number eight naval squadron moved into the Arras sector, equipped with the new Sopwith triplanes. Now they're One a Wizzo. Them... Well, they're a Wizzo aircraft. We ought to talk about that in brief. They're the ones that the Germans copy. We have talked about them before. They're 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 fast, uh, agile, uh, and uh, they've got three wings. And Wizzo. And Wizzo, yeah, they they are Wizzo. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to be one of their pilots. I'm going to be Flight Lieutenant Robert. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're going to be Flight <laughs> Lieutenant Robert. Oh, yeah, I am. I'm sorry. My professionalism was momentarily de- derailed by incompetent stupidity on my part. Who am I going to be? <laughs> You're going to be Flight Lieutenant Robert Compton of the 8th Naval Squadron. Oh, good. A brilliant lone hand. I feel safe in staying. Uh, right, there. he's talking. I now see why I was confused. He's talking about... Uh, Flight Lieutenant Robert Little. Now he is a real, real character. That's what confused me. Uh, he's 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 almost forgotten now. But it, they reckon he could shoot shoot the nose off a sausage if if a sausage had a nose and if you want to do that. And I'm going to Comson's talking about him. A brilliant lone hand. I feel safe in saying that there have been few better shots either in the services or outside than Robert Little. I've seen him bring down a crow on the wing with a .22 rifle. A break box. Bottles thrown into the air while they were still travelling upward. What more deadly foe could be found than such a man, armed with two machine guns firing at the rate of 2,000 rounds per minute? Once Little came within range of an enemy, he did not give up until, one, the enemy was shot down, two, his own engine failed, or three, he ran out of ammunition. He had in human guise the fighting tendencies of a bulldog. He never let go. Small in stature, keen-eyed, with face set grimly, he seemed the epitome of deadliness. Sitting aloft with the eyes of a hawk, he dealt death with unfailing precision. Seldom did he return to the aerodrome, reporting an indecisive combat. For as long as petrol and ammunition held out, little held on, till the enemy's machine either broke up or burst in flames. A bad enemy to have had, I would have thought. Wow. Now... Men such as him were an invaluable addition to Trenchard's meagre and hard-pressed forces as they too joined the battle above Arras. Mm. Now, a further piece of news comes along to cheer up the ailing Trenchard, and that was the arrival of 56 Squadron. And Ooh. what were they equipped with, Pete? They were equipped with the... You're trying to dodge this, but it's coming yes. your way anyway. <laughs> they, Gary, they were equipped with the SE5 uh, thing. Now, what does SE stand for? We've had this before. Special experimental, scout experimental, yes. scout experimental. <laughs> yeah, Thank now, you. now uh, to give us the benefit of your insightful view of uh, what, 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 what. Why was this new aircraft, this new scout aircraft, so valuable? What, what was good about it? Well, it was strongly built single seater biplane. It was primarily armed with a Vickers machine gun. Fitted with a Constantinesco, Constantinesco interruption gear. Constantinesco. Constantinesco. Istanbul, not Constantinesco. Constantinesco. Uh, but it also carried a Lewis gun, which was mounted <coughs> on the top wing. 
And I see why you've given me this piece. The Hispano Suzo engine could generate 114 mile per hour at 10,000 feet. And it gave the SE5 an effective ceiling of 17,000 feet. But it could go even higher, as we know from uh, Al Al Albert Ball. Remember, we, we talked about how he fiddled with his aircraft. Now, now, it's not just the aircraft, though, that's special about 56 Squadron, because, it, it, you know, in fact, it. The British didn't do this, but it was, in fact, almost an elite formation of scout pilots who, who, who were specially selected by their squadron leader, one Major Richard Blomfield. And they, they had proven leader fighting qualities, or they demonstrated an awful lot of promise at their flying training schools. And uh, who was amongst them? Who was amongst well, them? You've already I'm, mentioned him. Uh, the redoubtable Captain Albert Ball. Uh, MC, DSO and Bar, who was the hero of the entire RFC. Yeah, well, he was worshipped almost, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Now, what did Ball think about the, uh, the, uh, the SE5? Well, surprisingly, he was at first disappointed with it. And he wasn't Why? alone, if you let me finish. He wasn't alone in harbouring considerable doubts. The aircraft was plagued by minor faults of the kind that simply infuriated the pilots. From their perspective... They didn't understand how aircraft could get so far down the production line without the correction of obvious design flaws. And many changes were made. Some of them yeah. were trivial, others were crucial, but all gradually raised the performance of the machine to a more acceptable level. A better windscreen was fitted, unnecessary weight removed, so I couldn't get in it, and they gained an extra <laughs> seven miles per hour in speed. Wow, that is quite a lot, actually, yeah, at that time. And those of you who've downloaded Windows 11 will perhaps have some insight into, you know, when when you are the test audience. <laughs> um, uh, what's it? I particularly like they removed this. Uh, they had uh, they'd put uh, the designers had put a metal plate under the seat to protect uh, the pilot, uh, but it made the the machine a lot slower. So. <laughs> They took it out uh, because they were more likely to be hit in the end if they were going slower. Uh, the SE5A, that's what the... With the modification, it becomes the SE5A, so variant A. It, it's ready to take its place. I think it was the most effective British scout of the war. It, it was powerful. Uh, it, uh, it Its main thing was to zoom down, fire and climb away. Uh, that, it's not a dogfighting machine, it's a killing machine, and many of the great aces used it very well. I bet uh, that was really helpful then on the 9th of April. Yeah, it's not ready for then. Oh. It's, still be, it's still being fiddled with. Uh, it, it, yes, it, it's just a matter of days as well, Gary. It, it, but, but it's typically British. We don't have things ready in time. It's, we get things... No, instead of just in time, we're just too late. Now, on the positive side... At last, on Sunday, 8th of April, Trenchard rises from his sickbed like Lazarus, just in time for the final preparations of the offensive. So what's going on there? Well, the artillery observation pilots, they're still up, trying to get a few more precious hours above their lines, guide, uh, guiding British cells into the German batteries uh, because and, and machine gun posts, all the rest of it, because otherwise the infantry would be slaughtered when they went over the top. They, they've got to do it. Um, but but who, else is, uh, who else is busy in the skies on the uh, eight? Well, Richthofen's going from strength to strength. He's hunting in the skies above Arras, and he's, he's seemingly unstoppable. And one former comrade from their shared Jaster Bolker days looked on in awe and I'm going to be Lieutenant Irvin Berm of the uh, Jaster Bolker. 
Yeah, you're the one who killed uh, Bulker, aren't you? Yes. You don't like to think about that, do you? No. This morning, I was with Richtofen, no. who was now being promoted to Oberleutnant. He had just shot down number 38. It is amazing to what level he has brought his squadron in such a short time. He was nothing but great young... He, he has, has nothing not. But, <laughs> he has nothing but great young men around him who would jump through fire for him. Richthofen himself is full of vigour. Even if on some days he flies five sorties, one does not notice a trace of fatigue in him. What makes me happy is that he is completely free from boasting. He is a distinguished but very down-to-earth man. Hopefully, now, not literally. Yeah, well, eventually, Gary, eventually. Uh, now, Richtofen, he stepped, into, he stepped into Bulker's shoes, hasn't he? He set an example that's invigorating, enthusing. Uh, it, it, the whole German air service is enthralled to him. Um, but there's lots of other aggressive and skillful young German scout pilots, and uh, many of them trained and and, uh, and mentored by, by Richthofen himself. And Richthofen, what's, what's in his mind? He must have been due leave. He must have been due leave. Yeah, but uh, it's an unfortunate uh, effect on, on a lot of the pilots. He, he gets a fixation with scoring 50 victories before he goes on leave. And April would be a long, long month for the RFC as a result. It certainly would. He le he's leading a lot of brilliant young pilots. Now, on 9th of April, the 1st and 3rd Armies are going to go over the top. And, th and there's only one question in my mind. What is it, Gary? Had the Royal Flying Corps done its job? We'll find out in the next episode. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content.
You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?